And now I have the delight of introducing uh, three speakers uh, joining us today. First is Daniel Wise-Segui, a registered nurse since 2012. He earned his nursing degree from Linfield. Uh, first started at Providence as a nursing supervisor in 2020, and then transitioned to Oregon Region Ambulatory Infection Prevention Role in March of 2022. We're also joined by Dr. Justin Jin, an infectious disease physician at Providence Portland Medical Center. He attended Tulane Medical School and Tulane School of Public Health, and then did residency in internal medicine as well as fellowship in infectious disease at OHSU. And Dr. Jin serves as the medical director for infection prevention at Providence Portland Medical Center. And finally, we're joined by Dr. Wendy Drummond, an infectious disease specialist also at Providence Portland. She, researched, she received her medical degree from the Kansas City University of Medicine and Biosciences. She completed her residency in a combined internal medicine and pediatrics program in Phoenix, Arizona, and then served as chief medical resident at Banner University of Arizona and the Phoenix VA Medical Center. Dr. Drummond completed infectious disease fellowship at OHSU and is affiliate faculty appointment there at OHSU and PSU School of Public Health with particular expertise in a wide range of infectious disease topics, including non-tuberculous mycobacterial disease. And Dr. Drummond serves as the medical director for outpatient infection prevention for Providence, Oregon region. And uh, now I will go ahead and turn it over to our speakers. Thank you so much. Good morning, everyone, and thank you, Laura, for the really kind introduction. Um, I'm going to move at a fairly good clip because I want to make sure that we have a, a good amount of time for question and answer at the end. But today we're talking about monkeypox, a very timely and hot uh, topic issue. We're going to give a brief disease overview, updates on testing, as well as diagnosis and treatment. All right, so I'm just going to give you a quick background, and many of you may already be aware of this because there has been a lot of press about this particular infection, but this is an infection that's, um, this is a disease caused by infection with the monkeypox virus, and it does belong to the orthopox virus genus. Since we've been talking so much about testing and disseminating a lot of information about this, you're probably already aware of this, but and, and this particular genus includes the very olivirus, which is the cause of smallpox, vaccinia virus, which is used in the smallpox vaccine, as well as the cowpox virus. Now, the CDC has identified two different variants circulating in this outbreak, current outbreak that share common ancestors with strains that, were, that have been present in Nigeria since 2017. Monkeypox as, as, a, as a virus was first discovered in 1958 following two outbreaks of pox-like illness in monkeys. And in terms of the reservoir, the specific reservoir is unclear, but it's thought to be small African mammals. And then it goes from, and they presume, that they think that this is probably rodents that then pass it on to primates and then gets passed on to humans. So the first human case of monkeypox was detected in 1970 in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And there's two different clades. Uh, the West African clade is most likely what's circulating now, and this is associated with milder clinical disease. The other clade from the Congo Basin is more transmissible, and there is higher morbidity and mortality associated with this particular strain. So the first case of monkeypox um, in the United States during the current outbreak was confirmed in Massachusetts in May of 2022. You probably remember this. It got a lot of press. 
And to date, most of the reported cases in the US and globally have occurred in men who report sexual or close intimate contact with another man during three weeks before symptom onset. I'm just going to give you a brief epi overview just, just to sort of set the stage. And interestingly, we committed to doing this talk probably three or four weeks ago, and the epidemic curve actually looked pretty different back then because we were still on that upward slope. Um, this is from our world in data, and I think a lot of people have used this throughout the COVID pandemic, but you can see that you can see the slope of, of this epi curve it really looks like it peaked probably sometime in mid-August, and then you see that it's the cases are slowly coming down. The total number of global cases, and I checked the website this morning, uh, is logging in at roughly 53,000. This is really a, a, an example of the epidemic curve for US monkeypox case trends, and you can see it, it follows a similar trend. This peak over here, I think that was the week of 822. This was a peak of 870 cases reported that week. And we're seeing, in, in terms of total US cases, we're now at almost 20,000, uh, 19,962. The cases reporting, or the, the states reporting the greatest number of cases include um, California, New York, Texas, uh, Illinois, and Florida. Now let's just briefly uh, touch base about the situation in Oregon. And so these case numbers, uh, these get reported every week on Wednesday. So you can always go to the Oregon Health Authority website. And so these, um, this most recent update is from August 31st. Total number of cases at that time reported in Oregon was 169, confirmed 100 and presumptive 69. And then I just wanted to show you a breakdown by counties and I put the total number as well as the percentage. So you can see here at the lower end of the chart, Multnomah County has 119 cases sitting at 70%, followed by Lane County and then Washington County. Now looking at cases by ethnicity first, you can see that um, the Hispano uh, Latinx community uh, is here with 22%, non-Hispanic 75%, although we have seen that there's a disproportionate number of, of persons falling within that Latinx community. Um, the epidemiology of this has been pretty similar uh, across the board based on what we've seen worldwide and then cases reported in the US and also in Oregon where we're seeing the vast majority of cases um, in men, and this is, this is sex assigned birth, so 97%. You can see that there have been four female cases diagnosed in the state of Oregon, 33% living with HIV. And my, my comment on this is that um, it's, I mean, certainly people with HIV, especially if they they have uncontrolled or HIV, it'd be higher risk for complications, but really we're just looking at a group, it's just a higher risk group in general based on behaviors. And then you can see the breakdown based on race. So this is a publication that was um, first published in the UK uh, in the late spring. We first started seeing more cases uh, emerging from European countries. So they were publishing some of the earliest epi work. And um, once again, as I mentioned, uh, looking at the percentage of cases, 96% gay, bisexual, or men who have sex with men. Now at that time, there really was this travel piece, and it's not to say that you shouldn't ask about travel because you, you should, 
but once it gains a foothold in the country, this is probably of lesser importance at this point. But thinking about travel abroad prior to symptom onset within 21 days of that symptom onset, age under, uh, age under 30 years, 21%, um, and you can see some of the, the breakdown here. On HIV treatment, among those living with HIV, you can see that 95% or 99% of those cases were on HIV tre uh, treatment, roughly 30% living with HIV, and, and that's really the percentage that we're still seeing across the board. One thing I wanted to comment on, because I thought this was really interesting, um, is, there was a, a survey done looking at changes in behavior since this was identified as an outbreak in the United States. And this was uh, published in the MMWR strategies adopted by gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men to prevent monkeypox monkey virus transmission. You can see August of 2022. So this was a recent survey of gay, bisexual, and other men who have sex with men. And you can see that this was done in the first two weeks of August, and it was a monkeypox specific survey completed by 824 um, men who have sex with men. And approximately 50% of those individuals reported re uh, reducing the number of sex partners, one-time sexual encounters, and, using, and use of dating apps due to the current monkeypox outbreak. And I can say anecdotally, I've had a lot of my HIV and PrEP patients report that they've made some significant adjustments in their behaviors as well. At the time that this survey was done, one of five reported, uh, reported receiving one or greater doses of vaccine to prevent monkeypox. There's been a lot of education, and a lot of outreach going out to these groups in, in order to try and slow down transmission. And I already mentioned that we've seen a disproportionate number of cases among Hispanic or Latino men. I'm actually not going to spend a lot of time in this, but if you go back and look at the slides later, you can see that there's a breakdown based on different uh, high-risk behaviors. I want to shift over uh, and discuss the clinical syndrome. So what I'm going to talk about first is really sort of the textbook or historical clinical syndrome of this disease process, and then we'll talk about specifically what we're seeing in the most current uh, 2022 outbreak. Incubation period, typically five to 13 days, range of four to 17, and the illness usually uh, lasts around two to four weeks. And I would say that, you know, this top information is really similar to the current outbreak as well. Now, generally speaking, there's, there's usually a viral prodrome. So uh, what I mean by that is symptoms that patients experience prior to the onset of the rash. So this can include fever, malaise, headache, and lymphadenopathy. And this can be generalized or localized. And the presence of the lymphadenopathy is actually a distinguishing feature uh, from chickenpox or varicella. So something to consider in your, when you're thinking about differential. Now the rash um, and, the, and the, the more conventional presentation usually presents after the prodrome and there is a typical progression. So usually the lesions develop and evolve all at the same time, all over the body, and it can involve any part of the body, and it can involve the palms and soles. And one thing that I want to point out, sort of a little clinical pearl, when we think about uh, rashes, is that uh, the, uh, another disease process that can cause a rash that involves the palm and the soles is syphilis, and certainly syphilis is part of the differential, and we are seeing a lot of patients who are diagnosed with multiple STIs at the same time that they're diagnosed with monkeypox, so something to keep in mind. These lesions can be well circumscribed and they're um, 
characterized as deep-seated, they're firm, they're rubbery, um, and they can be painful and they, they can cause significant itching. Now, there's typically four stages, and this is actually true with the current outbreak as well. They first start out as macular lesions. Oh, <laughs> and, and then this, sorry, not popular, vesicular, pustular, and then into that scabbing and subsequent healing stage. And here are some examples of some of the more classic monkeypox lesions. You can go to the CDC website where they have a nice archive of all kinds of different pictures. So this is an example of these. Um, it's moved into the pustular phase and you can see that they have this, what we call this umbilicated appearance where you see this indentation. Another rash in which we see a, a somewhat similar appearance, although that, you know, um, there, there are some differences is that of molluscan contagiosum. Here's a, another lesion that you can see. This is uh, more of that vesicular moving into the um, pustular phase. This is an example of a pustular lesion. And then you can see how these have become more advanced um, on this person's, the distal part of the upper extremity. So just briefly touching on uh, what's going on with our current uh, outbreak and what does the clinical presentation look like now? So these are really the key differences that I want you to keep in mind as, um, is that the prodromal symptoms are often absent in these patients. And a lot of these patients who are rep reporting symptoms um, follow the onset of rash. So in that sense, they're not really prodromal, right? I mean, this is actually occurring after rash onset. Instead of being more diffuse, although we are seeing uh, some patients who have a fairly diffuse rash, generally speaking, these are confined to a local body site. We're, see these, we're seeing these in the genital or perianal region. Patients are presenting with oral or pharyngeal or lesions involving the pharyngeal mucosa. In contrast to the more typical presentation, they may not develop all at the same time in all body areas. And in fact, patients are reporting some patients will have oral mucosal lesions first and then perianal and then genital. So it's, it's really all over the map. Um, one thing I do want to highlight is it is often starting in those mucosal areas. Patients are also reporting significant symptoms of proctitis. They're uh, reporting significant anal rectal pain. Some patients have noted rectal bleeding. This may be associated uh, more commonly with the ulcerative skin lesions as they progress over time. Some patients have had very severe pharyngitis and had secondary peritonsillar abscesses, so we can see secondary bacterial infections in these patients. So keeping that in mind, especially they can develop secondary cellulitis uh, involving the skin lesions. And some patients have been hospitalized mainly for pain management due to this uh, significant mucosal involvement. So that really speaks to the, um, the management of these patients. Now, uh, you can always take a look at these slide sets later, but I also put the source down here. So at the very end of July, first week of August, there was this great publication, Thornhill 2022, New England Journal of Medicine. Um, and and this is, these are just different examples of the lesions. And I encourage you to go to this publication, but specifically take a look at the appendix because there are 
so many pictures of different lesions, the evolution of the lesions. I think it's really interesting how it correlates to PCR um, positivity and negativity, which I'm not going to spend a lot of time on, but I just want you to know that there's pictures within the article itself embedded in the article, but there's a supplementary appendix that I really encourage you to take a look at. Uh, but I think it's nice that you can see the evolution of lesions over time, and these are just different um, perianal lesions. This is an example of evolution on the skin. So keeping in mind that it starts as the macular, vesicular, pustular, and then some example of oral lesions. And here's some lesions on the sole of the foot. And then just once again, just appearance of different types of lesions. So I really ex uh, encourage you to take a look and familiarize yourselves with this. And you can see that this characteristic umbilication and just as they progress through the different stages. I already mentioned some of the complications, um, including secondary skin and soft tissue infections, uh, peritonsillar abscesses. They can also develop pneumonitis. Uh, there have been some case reports of encephalitis, site-threatening site keratitis. Um, mortality rates vary, although generally speaking with this current outbreak and given the specific strain that's circulating, it is, um, it is less invasive and uh, we, we've seen one case of mortality in this country, although they don't necessarily think it was related to monkeypox specifically. It was someone who had a diagnosis of monkeypox was, who was severely immunocompromised, but they haven't reported all the details of that case yet. And uh, speaking to that on this slide, so reported death in Texas. And then there were two cases of encephalitis in Spain. This was in, uh, individuals age 44 and 51 who are um, non-immunocompromised. So risk factors for more severe disease, and I suspect that Dr. Jen will speak to this in a couple minutes, but anyone who's immunocompromised or has underlying immuno uh, or mild to severe immunocompromising conditions. The other thing I wanted to point out here is history of eczema, atopic dermatitis, or other acute exfoliative skin conditions, patients with psoriasis, uh, young children under eight and lesions in the face and eye. So thinking about, okay, who are the individuals do I need to get involved with this patient's care? Thinking about ophthalmology, for example. And this is just that brief research summary of that Thornhill article that you can refer to later. And this just once again, this is looking at 528 cases in the United States, and this breaks down the different clinical characteristics. And I've really sort of highlighted this before. This is just to say, this is very similar to what we were seeing in that UK study, but knowing that as more cases get diagnosed over time, this epidemiology is gonna shift. So we already know that we're seeing increasing cases in females. Now these tend to be people in higher risk sexual groups, including persons who are bisexual, so women who are having sex with men who have sex with men. We have seen pediatric cases, but those have been close contacts to other known cases. And then I just briefly wanted to include a slide about persons with HIV infection. Um, once again, uh, we've seen patients who have been diagnosed who have multiple STIs, people who've been diagnosed with acute HIV, but a lot of these persons are uh, individuals who are already living with HIV. I'm just pointing out that the vast majority of these patients um, are well controlled. Their mean CD4 count is 680. Generally speaking, these patients have a, a undetectable or well-controlled viral load and are um, presumably immunocompetent. 
Now, in terms of transmission, I've referenced this already, but generally occurs through contact with bodily fluids, wounds on the skin or internal mucosal surfaces, respiratory droplets, or contaminated objects. And here's the nitty gritty, right? Direct contact with infectious rash, scabs, or body fluids, respiratory secretions. So this isn't COVID, folks. This isn't, um, you know, there is potentially uh, aerosolization. However, it's really respiratory secretions during prolonged face-to-face -face contact, intimate physical contact, such as kissing, cuddling, or sex, touching items previously touched, the infectious rash or body fluids, and then uh, placenta, so uh, uh, vertical transmission in pregnant women. And then potentially inadequately cooked meat or products from infected animals, but this is really what we're seeing in uh, persons who've traveled or in Africa. We've already talked about most of this. I would say that patient, one thing I want to emphasize is that patients are infectious once symptoms begin, so prodromal or rash, but keeping in mind with this current outbreak, uh, primarily seeing the rash first, and th these individuals do remain infectious until lesions form scabs, scabs fall off, and there's a fresh layer of skin that's formed. I think I'm going to move on from this, but this is just looking at a study that was published back in 2019, just looking at the human-to-human -human transmission that's been well described. Secondary attack rate can be as high as 8%, but it really depends on the specific strain. So diagnosis and differentials. So if you if you have a person who's calling or presenting to clinic, I've, I've had some of my prep patients sort of sneak in for a prep visit, but really the reason that they're there is because they have new lesions that they're concerned about. Please, 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 please ask lots of questions and complete a sexual and travel history for the last 21 days. The other thing that's really important is to conduct a very thorough skin and mucosal examination, and you need to look in really all orifices, please, genital, anal, oral, and you need very good lighting. You know, there may be lesions that they've been very dismissive of, or maybe it's something, and you want to make sure that you get a good look at it. And then there's just a really broad differential for the rash, and especially in this patient population, as I've referenced before, thinking about other concomitant um, sexually transmitted infections, including syphilis, any of these STIs that can also present with skin lesions. Now, varicella zoster is not conventionally considered an STI, of course, but just thinking about the, the rash presentation, herpes simplex, molluscum contagiosum, um, LGV, which is caused by chlamydia. And what we do encourage you to do is screen for these other STIs. You're probably gonna wanna empirically treat for a lot of these things, even pending results, depending on your clinical suspicion for other STIs. And um, also there've been some persons who have also been diagnosed with acute HIV and that can present with a, a macular rash, but just keeping that in mind. Testing for for suspected monkeypox. Um, well, who to test? It's not everyone with a rash. So once again, this is why we want you to really familiarize yourself with uh, what this rash, rash looks like in the different stages. Um, you know, really thinking through what this, what an individual patient's risk factors are that we've already reviewed. We want a reasonable threshold for testing, okay? Recommended specimen is a skin lesion material. A swab from any part of the body is acceptable. You do not need to unroof the lesion. 
We do recommend that you swab vigorously to collect an adequate sample as this helps you collect enough DNA to be detected. And that concludes my section of the presentation. And I need to stop sharing. There we go. Thank you so much for your attention and I'm gonna hand this over to Daniel. Good morning, just as a reminder, I'm Daniel Wysicki. I'm the ambulatory or outpatient infection preventionist for the Oregon region. So uh, we're gonna go over a little bit more about what do you do when it lands in your clinic? Because I have generally been the touch point for most locations when this has come up. So I have helped a number of folks kind of guide them through the process of what to do, what do we wear, and what happens next? Those are, tend to be the questions I field most commonly. Well, let's get into that part. First and foremost, PPE tends to be the question that we tend to lead off with. So standard stuff we already have is completely adequate. So we have gloves, we have gown, we have eye protection and an N95 mask, cap or paper or equivalent. Um, the other question that usually follows that immediately is what do I do now afterwards? They've had a gown, they've been in a room, like what do I need to do? The upside here is that monkeypox as a virus is actually weaker or more fragile compared to coronavirus. So it's actually easier to clean and get rid of. All the products that we have that work for COVID will also work for a monkeypox virus as well. As Dr. Drubbin spoke to before, the formites of concern really are items that touch a person's body either fully or partially. The things most concerning are going to be linens, towels, uh, patient gowns if they spend time in them, things that are soiled and potentially come into contact with the, you know, uh, discharge from those specific lesions. But again, the main items of concern here are the porous surfaces. So less concerned about incidental contact from clipboards, pens, things of that nature. They're not really, they're not absorptive surfaces really um, compared to what we would be more concerned about the things that really do touch a whole person's body and also have the properties where they could absorb some of those bodily fluids and then kind of hang on to them for a while. Main thing to note here, at least as far as laundry is concerned, is that there is a concern that if someone has shed either scabs or other pieces of their skin into a patient gown, that that should be gently put into a laundry bag as opposed to, you know, no big fluffing out. Um, that, that would be undesirable. Uh, you want to make sure that you sequester this laundry in a gentle manner into a bag, and then it can go through your regular laundry process for soiled linens. Um, again, a lot of the impetus here is to avoid potential aerosolization of skin particles or scab particles, um, especially if they've been in for a vigorous swabbing as is required during the specimen gathering. You do want to try to limit any process that might kind of bring that dust up as much as possible. Dr. Drummond thankfully also covered this a bit, but I'm going to hammer it home because these are the notes that I read got to make sure that you ask the questions about exposures to known cases especially. That is your number one risk factor right off the bat. Have they come into contact with someone who they know who has the lesions or in the events that we're dealing with more frequently, do they know someone that they have had a sexual encounter with has had a sexual encounter with someone who might have lesions? Because a lot of times these networks are very close-knit, but they do involve more people than you would initially expect. Um, 
The other piece of it, as we went over before, is making sure that you do fully examine the body for lesions, especially oral, rectal, intraanal lesions. Those are, they're not obvious in the first, first place. Some folks can have those lesions and not be aware of them in the first place. And in particular too here, really going into the sexual history especially. So if the, uh, if the patient is someone who engages in unprotected sex, how often, when was the last time, who are they having sexual encounters with, and are they able to contact any of these partners to ask or inform about these potential STIs that they are then going to be diagnosed with. And at least a couple different encounters that I have been a part of, patients were able to immediately text or reach out to previous partners that they had and find in that moment that that person was being treated for monkeypox right then and there. So it was an easy loop to close at the moment, but you have to ask the questions to find out. Um, and in particular too, detailing the type of exposures that they are having is really helpful to determine where the risk factors are gonna lie and if there are more potential people in this loop that need to be made aware of this potential exposure. Getting the samples. So first and foremost, no cotton swabs. They are not accepted whatsoever. And as Dr. Drummond pointed out, unroofing lesions is unnecessary. And in some cases, this can be extremely, extremely painful. So that is not going to win you favors, at least when you're trying to get your sample either way. Um, First and foremost, too, we have had a number of situations where there have been a variety of questionable appearing lesions, and rightly so, providers want to swab a couple of them because they're concerned they might be other co-occurring STIs. And in that case, you do need to be very diligent about labeling all of these different samples as you are gathering them, both so that you can keep track of which thing you were concerned about at the time, but also these if they are sent to the lab, not specifically labeled and or categorized, you're gonna trigger a lab exception that's gonna delay processing and it's gonna delay the lab processing time from LabCorp who processes the majority of our monkeypox samples currently. It's only gonna push that turnaround time out even further, which is not fun for anyone involved at all. Um, big clear note, LabCorp thus far will always accept a swab sent in a dry, sterile urine specimen container. Everybody should have those at any location of any kind. Those are just standardly ubiquitous. UTM and VTM transport tubes, so the things we most commonly would use for cultures or other samples, those are also acceptable. However, I will note that specifically there is a single brand that LabCorp has an issue with where they have some sort of reference results mismatch um, for their equipment where they will not accept the Merit Medical Cultura tubes, um, but otherwise they will accept any of the other tubes currently in use. Um, and as always, you can always fall back to the sterile urine specimen container that one will work regardless. Patient disposition. So one of the big things we're seeing here especially is that because these results are being run at, uh, out of a commercial lab that we're connected to, those positives are being sent to the state before we even know that their results are done processing. So you do need to prepare your patient that if they have a positive result, they're likely going to be contacted very quickly by the local county health department the moment that those results are pushed to them from the commercial laboratory service. So I've definitely seen a number of encounters where patients have contacted us to let us know that they were positive and we hadn't even seen the result back yet um, because that's just how Johnny on the spot <laughs> LabCorp is with doing their mandatory reporting. So it's important to let folks know that also because you do want to make sure that you have contact methods for your patient hammered out 
prior to when you need to reach out to them to let them know. Um, especially in the case of the health department, they're going to want to be able to do contact tracing and discussions with patients, and they need to be able to do that in a timely manner just to save everybody more headaches. Right now, the quoted time, at least from LabCorp, is around three to five days for processing, although that's really pushed out to potentially seven to ten. In practice, from what I've seen, having tracked the majority of the results that actually come through, it's more along the lines of between four and six days. Um, keeping in mind, too, that if someone is being screened for monkeypox, this should mean that they're isolating at home in order to prevent potential exposure to others. So do need to account for that in your work notes or other excuses uh, that you would be signing off for folks. And also that that ends the moment they get the result back and it's potentially negative. So upside for that. Um, the other thing, too, to let folks know is that if their lesions get worse after they see you, there are options. So some folks have come in with just a couple lesions, not really that burdensome at the time, but it has escalated quickly thereafter. And a lot of folks kind of tend to, well, what do I do about it? Um, while the mortality for this is extremely low, it's not comfortable. So it's not necessarily a, a condition that you would be happy to leave people to enjoy on their own at home, especially when we have options to deal with it or options where if it really is particularly painful and or is threatening sense of sight, nose, mouth, airway, there are options. We have treatment. Dr. Jim will be speaking more about that right after this. Don't forget, if you're not sure, you can ask. That's what we're here for. Um, I, always am happy to field questions when it comes to monkeypox at this point. Uh, it's been my number one topic of conversation for the past month. So that's what I'm here for, as are we all. So I'll hang it over to Dr. Jim. Hmm. Can you see my slides? Okay. Let me go into presenter mode. Okay, so you guys can see me. Yeah, see you. Okay. Yes, thank you. Okay, great, great. All right, all right. Thanks uh, for the invitation to to speak. You know, this I'm going to talk a little bit about monkeypox uh, vaccines and kind of the history behind the the development of these vaccines. Also, talk a little bit about treatment as well. You know, as any of these you know three sections that we Dr. Drummond and Daniel spoke uh, about, I think could be whole like 45 minute hour talks by themselves. So I'm going to try to go through a lot of information relatively quickly so we have a little bit of time left over for questions. So you know, smallpox vaccinations have been around for centuries. You know, smallpox, um, you know, in the past 20th, in the, the 20th century is estimated to killed about 300 to 500 million individuals used to kill before effective vaccines were available, uh, about 5 million people estimated per year. So this process of virilization or exposing non-immune individuals um, to smallpox by either scratching scabs into their uh, into their arms or using crushed up scabs from smallpox and blowing it into their nose, as this top picture shows, uh, has been described in uh, for well over a thousand years. It was risky, you know, a case fatality rate of uh, about 0.5 to 2%, um, but, you know, smallpox by itself had a fatality, case fatality rate of estimated about 30% or so. So in about uh, 1796, uh, we probably all learned about this in immunology, but uh, Edward Jenner had noted that milkmaids who had contracted cowpox had been prevented, uh, protected from developing smallpox. So he took a scab 
from a uh, uh, infected milkmaid uh, that was infected with cowpox and inoculated it into a nine-year-old uh, child, uh, the son of uh, Jenner's gardener, this guy James Phipps, and uh, he exposed this patient to uh, variola several times, and he never became ill. And so this whole process of uh, you know vaccination uh, you know, got got started uh, after this process. It probably would never get through the IRB currently, though. But uh, was uh, important uh, step in eradicating smallpox. So currently, we don't use cowpox vaccinations um, uh, for uh, cowpox virus for the vaccinations. We use vaccinia virus. Um, it's all they're all members of the orthopox virus family. Um, they are very highly conserved across the orthopox viruses. So the proteins from one orthopox virus uh, tends to provide immunity to the other orthopox uh, viruses. So vaccinia virus will prevent uh, smallpox. And that's currently the strategy that we're using right now with our uh, monkeypox vaccination campaign. Smallpox was eradicated in, 19, in the early 1970s, but there was also concern uh, that the Soviet Union um, had been producing large amounts of smallpox for biologic weapons program, and there was always always concern for possible terrorist threat, especially after the fall of the Soviet Union. So in 2004, there was a the Project BioShield that uh, was started by the U.S. government. Uh, the older older vaccination Drivax had been uh, was being removed from the strategic nas national stockpile, and uh, the U.S. government had come up with uh, this agency to try to come up with strategies to defend against certain types of uh, terroristic attacks, like biologic, chemical, radiologic uh, attacks. So the uh, BARDA, Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority. Um, was established under the DHHS to manage Project BioShield, and they were tasked with uh, being the liaison between uh, biomed industry and the government to develop drugs and vaccinations. So the first vaccine against smallpox to be developed under uh, this was the ACAM 2000. This is made from a replication competent vaccinia virus, and it was licensed in 2007 and officially replaced Drivax in 2008. It uses a cell culture technique instead of the old Drivax vaccination uh, technique of growing it on the skin of calves um, uh, and collecting lymph lymphatic uh, fluid from the calves. Um, it's a single dose given with a two-pronged needle, kind of like the old uh, uh, Drivax vaccination. Um, and the U.S. government has about 200 million of these doses in stockpile. It's been used selectively in uh, military populations pre-deployment. Um, I believe that, uh, if you go to Korea or to the Middle East, you, uh, they've been vaccinating soldiers going into that area for many years. Um, the problem with the ACAM 2000 is there's quite a few side effects. Um, you get a sore arm fever, you know, a lot of the kind of similar um, uh, constitutional symptoms that you get with any vaccinations. But the major issue that we're worried about is the myocarditis. And about one in 175 adults uh, that receive this vaccination will get some type of cardiac complication. Um, eczema vaccinatum uh, in individuals with dermatitis or, uh, or eczema uh, can be a complication. Uh, you cannot give this patient, uh, give this vaccine to patients with immunocompromised due to the risk of uh, progressive vaccinia. 
Uh, there's been neurologic side effects, including encephalitis and meningitis, um, and just overall risk of developing um, uh, or spreading it to other people in the environment. Because if you look at this, uh, you know, the day four, seven, 14, 21, um, virus is being shed from this since it's a replication competent virus. So uh, you could potentially infect somebody that was immunocompromised. So the Genios uh, vaccine, also known as uh, Imivune, and I think I think that's in Europe, and Imvinex, I think that's in Great Britain, um, or is made from the modified Vaccinia Ankara virus, which is a non-replicating um, uh, Vaccinia virus that it was developed by this company, Bavarian Nordic, uh, and that's produced, I believe, in Denmark. It was developed essentially as an alternative to these older uh, ACAM 2000 vaccinations um, to provide vaccines in the uh, for immunocompromised individuals in case if there was a bioterrorist attack. Uh, you can use this in patients with uh, eczema and patients with severe immunocompromised. It's a two dose series. Um, first dose. Uh, is the traditional dosing, and I'll talk a little bit more about the uh, intradermal dosing, is a sub-Q dosing. Um, for post-exposure prophylaxis, it's um, uh, ideal to give it within 14 days. Within four days, it will help prevent uh, infection. Four to 14 days will help uh, reduce symptoms. And the safety profile is much better for than the ACAM 2000. Um, no low risk for, uh, there's no risk for transmission to immunocompromised because you don't really have that open take that you uh, have with the traditional um, uh, vaccines like Drivax and ACAM 2000. And the cardiac side effects are thought to be much lower as well. Although uh, the, you know, we are, monitoring, they're actively monitoring for evidence of uh, uh, myocarditis and other complications. So talk a little bit about intradermal dosing. So the it's been estimated that um, there's about 1.7 million or so individuals in the U.S. that are at risk for, uh, at high risk for contracting, contracting monkeypox. Um, and we require about 3.2 to 3.4 million doses of Genios to be, be able to adequately vaccinate this population. However, due to produ production issues um, and supply issues, uh, supply chain issues worldwide, only about 1.6 to 1.8 million doses uh, would be available by December 2022. So the CDC and the FDA uh, met and they put together a, they approved an EUA uh, in early August to do intradermal dosing at one-fifth the dose, so 0.1 uh, mLs versus a 0.5 ml uh, dose for the sub-Q dosing intradermally. Um, the bottles come in a 0.5 dose, so ideally you can try to get five doses out of there. I think in practice it's more like four or so, kind of depending. Um, these regimens are interchangeable um, and, uh, you know, we have been extending out dosing as well. I know like in Europe, uh, like I think in Britain, they've been trying to get as many first doses in the arms as possible. In the US, we've been doing the same thing as well. Uh, but right now, now that supply chain issues are getting a little bit better, especially since we're doing the intradermal dosing, um, we are recommending trying to get the second doses in individuals' arms. As far as efficacy goes, so, you know, we don't really have, um, clinical e efficacy for any of these uh, vaccines uh, right now. But what we do have is um, some tighter data uh, 
this comparing sub Q and intradermal dosing. And what you can see, this slide really kind of shows you is that it looks pretty much the same. So this, you know, this modified vaccine uh, anchor has been given intradermally um, in Germany since the 1970s, and they've shown some really good success, you know, uh, at least uh, as far as titers go, no real difference in uh, uh, titers seen between the two different dosing strategies. How to administer uh, intradermally? It's, you know, for any of us that's that have placed PPD test, it's essentially the same technique, um, you know, so it's a, you know, you make that little wheel, uh, monitor for monitor patients for about 15 minutes. If they've got a history of uh, anaphylaxis to gent, cipro, chicken or egg proteins, then uh, we observe them for 30 minutes. Uh, the one of the major contra contraindications for giving it intradermally would be if they've got a history of uh, keloid scars. As far as uh, reactogenicity, um, uh, the major difference is uh, people that get intradermal injections have uh, um, more erythema at the site and duration at the site and itchiness at the site. It seems like you get more pain subcutaneously. So I've seen some patients that have had rather large indurations. It looks like a positive PPD on their arm. Um, so there's some, there's been some alternative uh, sub, uh, uh, inter, I'm sorry, intradermal um, site recommendations by given by the county. Uh, especially if they're coming in for that second dose at a month and they still have a rather large sub-Q uh, or a rather large induration at that site. Um, you could either go to the other arm or there's a subscapular uh, on the back. Um, uh, uh, oh, I'm sorry, in, in, uh, just below the scapula or the upper thigh. Has, I, they also mentioned that as a potential alternative site for these uh, injections. Uh, as far as the guidance goes, who gets this? The standard, um, I'm sorry, uh, standard post-exposure prophylaxis. So uh, contacts of people uh, with presumptive or confirmed monkeypox, contacts of people with presumptive uh, or confirmed uh, monkeypox in, in another jurisdiction. Uh, vaccination can also be considered for contacts of people suspected uh, monkeypox if the index of suspicion is high enough. Um, and timely vaccination contacts may, might not be otherwise uh, uh, possible. There's also the pre-exposure prophylaxis, which is a little bit different than the, the current OHA guidelines are a little bit different. They break, break it up into uh, uh, PEP++, but this is essentially the same. Uh, cisgender men, transgender men, transgender women, and non-binary people who have sex with men and who meet one of the uh, one or more of the following criteria. So have had more than one sexual partner in an area experience a community transmission in the past two weeks or have been diagnosed with a sexually transmitted disease or infection in the past three months or taking HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis or living with HIV and meet criteria A or B. Uh, also people of any gender or sexual orientation who are engaged in commercial sex work. So how effective is the uh, the vaccine vaccine in preventing uh, infection? This is a preprint article that was published in uh, pre it's a uh, pre-published uh, out of France where they looked at 276 individuals who were uh, who received the Imvenex Imvenex uh, vaccination, which is the European equivalent of the Genios, after high risk contact with PCR confirmed monkeypox patients. So the median delay in uh, in this study for the breakthrough cases, and there was 12 out of these 276, uh, was 11 days. So you know 
not within that four days after exposure to prevent disease. The um, average, uh, or I think the most of these individuals had breakthrough cases within five days, although you did see these two these two cases, patient 11 and 25, who had breakthroughs at 22 and 25 days, which is a little uh, weird. Four out of the 12 of these patients were HIV positive. Interestingly, 29 uh, uh, of the patients of the 276 had previous uh, smallpox vaccinations. Um, uh, from previous vaccination campaigns, probably, you know, been, they were probably much older, but only two of those had breakthrough infections. You know, there was an older study uh, from the early 80s looking at uh, smallpox vaccinations to prevent uh, monkey or uh, prevention of monkeypox outbreaks in the Congo or in the, actually Zaire back then. Um, and they showed about 85% efficacy uh, for smallpox vaccinated individuals uh, to prevent uh, Prevented, uh, preventing uh, symptomatic monkeypox cases. It's unknown though how long that duration lasts. I think some people believe uh, it probably lasts a lifetime, but uh, there's really not great data on that. Um, Genius doses uh, administered, uh, we, there's been over 352,000 cases, uh, um, uh, doses that have been administered in the US so far. I'm gonna go through these slides relatively quickly. Uh, in Oregon over, uh, um, we've received over 9,000 doses, over 6,700 doses uh, have been administered as of last week, and currently um, available doses are about 25,000, 26,000 doses. And if we use our doses, we could potentially get more uh, allocated by the CDC. Um, currently, uh, the Providence has opened up a uh, Genios vaccine clinic. Uh, it was last week. Um, so they're available through the virtual sick clinic and uh, their uh, help, helping schedule. So Tuesdays and Thursday evenings, Tuesday, uh, Tuesday evenings at Gateway, Thursday evenings at Sunset. Um, and this is the number for VSC. If you are an employee that has a high risk exposure, so if you're not wearing proper PPE uh, and come in contact with a, a known uh, monkeypox case, uh, then you would contact Caregiver Health Services uh, to get uh, post-exposure prophylaxis. Uh, this is a good website. Uh, this is a good resource for um, the Genius vaccination. It goes through, you know, uh, it goes through all the different uh, administration techniques and um, what to do if you have an error on administration. Uh, so I'll leave this uh, up here, or it'll be in the slide set that you guys can take a look at later. Therapeutics. Uh, you know, most people will recover, as you know, been uh, discussed by our previous. Speakers, but the main thing is pain control. You know, if they have perianal lesions, stool softener, sits baths, um, topical lidocaine can sometimes uh, help as well. But uh, ticavorumab or TPOX um, was one of the uh, uh, drugs that was developed under um, Project BioShield, FDA approved for treatment of smallpox in adults and children under the animal animal efficacy rule. Um, so animal efficacy rule, there was obviously no uh, human challenge trials, um, but uh, uh, it has been approved for use in orthopox virus or smallpox. Uh, so there's oral uh, that was approved in 2008 and the IV was approved um, more recently. It's available by uh, uh, EAIND from the strategic Na national stockpile, weight-based dosing, um, oral needs to be taken with a fatty meal. Uh, so it's twice a day weight-based. Um, so you would have to give it with, I think it's like 25 grams of fat per meal. So if they're unable to take oral, 
uh, if they got a history of uh, problems with potential absorption like gastric bypass surgery or something like that, then you might need to move towards the IV. We avoid IV formulation in individuals with uh, creatinine clearance less than 30. Uh, real quickly on this, it, it essentially targets a VP37 protein, which is only found in the orthopox virus family, um, and it prevents maturation of uh, mature viruses. Um, indications, we talked a little bit about this, so severe disease, uh, confluent lesions, encephalitis, hemorrhagic disease, or other conditions requiring hospitalization. Um, you know, high-risk patients. You know, immunocompromised, peds, pregnant people, history of atomic dermatitis. Um, uh, you know, if they're unable to take PO, um, you know, secondary skin uh, infections, and then uh, ocular infections um, are going to be high risk as well. And then other areas uh, where you know that might be um, rel relatively sensitive, so GU areas, uh, perianal peri areas. If they're unable to defecate, then sometimes you we're know, having a ton of pain. Then oftentimes they're going to have to get admitted to get therapy. TPOX, we do have it available through the uh, Expanded access IND process. Uh, virtual sick clinic uh, is also managing this, um, and then there's paperwork that needs to get filled out. Uh, ID is always available to discuss high risk patients, um, to, and uh, the virtual sick will help with these intake forms. Efficacy. Uh, this was just published fairly recently. It was a case series at UC Davis. Um, and it looked like people had very good uh, response to therapy, very well tolerated, and uh, did uh, uh, help with symptom uh, decrease. Post-exposure prophylaxis, there's a couple trials going on right now, so I'm just going to go through the, uh, going to skip this slide. Other therapies, there's a bunch of other therapies out there, but, you know, uh, TPOX seems like the most promising. So if you have questions on that, you can ask about those later. So I'm going to stop there so we can take a little bit of time for questions. Great. Many thanks to all three of our providers. Um, so much information provided. Uh, I think you answered many of our questions as we went along. Um, I just want to point out um, thank you to uh, our librarian who has also provided a link to the Thornhill article um, there in the Q&A section, so feel free to refer to that. Um, perhaps a couple logistical questions. Um, it's really wonderful to see the availability of the virtual sick clinic being able to help with uh, vaccination and also with treatment. Can you talk a little bit about logistics and timing of referring to them if you're seeing a patient in whom you have a, a medium level of suspicion as to whether this is actually a monkeypox um, diagnosis or not? Are you referring to therapeutics or for vaccination? I think um, a patient presenting with a potential um, monkeypox infection should they be referred for further evaluation with the virtual sick clinic straight away or try to handle within your own clinic? Well, I think that I think most clinics should be able to do the testing. And so, you know, virtual sick will uh, is available if the patient is sick enough and meets criteria for uh, evaluation for TPOX. So, you know, if they're having just a, you know, if there's a, a few lesions, then, you know, probably our recommendation at that time would be to, you know, have them swab, tell them to, you know, monitor at home, you know, isolate at home, 
but if symptoms worsen, then if you're getting that call, like I can't eat or I'm having, you know, you know, severe pain or things are worsening clinically, then that might be the discussion where you would refer them for to the virtual six so they can start the TPOX process. Perfect. Thank you. That makes good sense. And I, I think Daniel might be weighing in as well, and perhaps we'll add one clarification to that. Um, did we understand correctly that any patient with a diagnosis should then go on to receive the vaccine at that point? Generally, no. Once you're va once you're symptomatic, the uh, we generally don't. We would not recommend vaccination at that point. Yeah, that's part of the point I was going to clarify a little bit. When if folks have had an exposure but they have not yet had an eruption of lesions, that's kind of the golden window where if you can get them scheduled through the VSC to get vaccinated, that will yeah. either potentially remove the eruption of lesions as the course of their illness or dramatically shorten the duration that their lesions are present. So if you can get them in that window of time, that's the best time to do it. If lesions have already erupted, that window unfortunately has closed for them and vaccination will not be as helpful. Then it's a question at that point of supportive care unless TPOX becomes then a potential option and if their symptoms have advanced to that degree that that might be something that is needed. It's thought that they're going to develop good immunity with disease. So, you know, unlike other processes where we might say, yeah, go ahead and vaccinate them as soon as you can, they, these individuals will have pretty good immunity following infection. Perfect. Thank you. And thank you for the materials that have been put together. I imagine those include information um, for patients who pre patients who present and then wonder what to tell um, other people, including household contacts of their own with regard to next steps. Any, any comments that you've had on that of where we should go for those details or any particularly important points to, to let um, patients know regarding their contact with others? So I could say that we've mostly been utilizing the resources that the Oregon Health Authority have put together for folks that have um, kind of detailed summaries about what does it mean if you if your doctor tells you that you're being tested for monkeypox, what does this mean for you? What should you be doing? It kind of outlines both the isolation piece of it. It also goes over a little bit of like, what are your risks of transmission? Like, what do you need to limit for yourself for potential cohabitants or you know friends and family that live with you at that same time? Those tend to be the resources we utilize because they're pretty well thought out and they update them on a regular basis. They also are offering them in more than 14 different languages as well. So if language barrier is a concern, OHA, they got you covered for most of it, so. Perfect, thank you. Again, such a comprehensive presentation. We really appreciate not only the presentation, but all the work that you've been doing on behalf of all of us um, with this outbreak ongoing. We are just coming up to the top of the hour with one minute. I'll leave an opportunity in case there's any last thought from any of our presenters. Thank you to our audience um, and we'll see you next week. I just wanted to quickly say that there's been a document, the monkeypox playbook that's been widely distributed. Daniel spent a lot of time on this. There's been a lot of input and it has links um, to that documentation, patient edu education, how to submit to the lab. So there's a lot of helpful information in that document that's gone out through practice alerts. Thank you very much. Yes, we have seen that document. Um, and when we send our follow-up email regarding this presentation, um, would be a great opportunity to include that again. So thank you.
now includes an algorithm to help you figure out what you should do next. Perfect. Thank you all. Take care.